government in the Idaho legislature and in the state house and uh, do the work of conservation at the state legislature. So those small groups got together and formed the Idaho Conservation League. And at that time, we were a true league of small groups across the state who got together and pooled resources to have um, a lobbyist in the state legislature to make sure that the legislature was paying attention to conservation issues. And then, of course, we've grown and changed a lot in that 51 years and um, have taken on a lot of different programs and now have offices in four different communities across the state, including Boise, Sandpoint, McCall, and Sun Valley. Um, so we really have, um, we're a much bigger organization. We do a lot more work than just the legislature now. And I think at last count, we're at 32 staff. So getting pretty big. Yeah, it really is. And we're going to be talking shortly about the projects that you're currently engaged in focusing on. But have there been some standout successes over the years that would be nice to mention? Sure. Um, well, there's a lot. <laughs> it's hard to pick any one thing. But, um, you know, I think what really moved the organization from being just a one, a staff of one in the Idaho legislature was um, in the late 1970s, the late Senator Frank Church asked the Idaho Conservation League to help organize support for the designation of the, of the at that time, the River of No Return Wilderness. And of course, his name was later added to the name of that wilderness area in recognition of all the work that he did on conservation in Congress after he passed away. But ICL was kind of really at a make or break moment in the late 70s, and the organization could have faltered and just totally gone away. But I think when Senator Church asked ICL to get involved in organizing support across the state for the protection of the River of No Return Wilderness, it really brought new life and energy to the organization and also uh, meant that instead of just doing work in the Idaho legislature, we were now taking on a whole bunch of different programs, even outside of the legislature. What a great opportunity for a small organization to mm -hmm. make a big splash in the state. Wow. Totally. That's right. Anything else, or should we move on to current projects? We should probably move to current projects. I could spend the whole day talking about various right. stuff we worked on over those 51 years. And there's a website, I would guess, for that. Yes, yes. org. Very good. All right, well, let's jump into it. Uh, we're going to talk about Idaho Conservation League's current work and who would like to pick a, pick a topic. I'll go ahead and start just um, with a little announcement of something exciting coming up. Um, last year, we hired a new climate coordinator, Adrian Gallo. He is um, a wonderful human being with an expansive knowledge regarding climate. Um, and he will be here on February 15th in Sandpoint to give his presentation called Looking Back and Planning Ahead, The Road to a Clean Energy Future at the Sandpoint Library. So like I said, Adrian has an expansive knowledge. He has a PhD in terrestrial biogeochemistry, which is just studying the effect of climate change on various ecosystems. So he's a smart cookie. Um, and in this presentation, he kind of just shares a thoughtful glimpse at the green energy transitions past, present, and future. And it's just an invite for an open conversation about what the climate could look like moving forward. And so we invite people to turn out for that. That's just a little plug I wanted to give, but it should be really exciting. And 
informative. Yes, Carissa, would you mind repeating the information again in case folks didn't listen at first and then heard how interesting it was going to be right? and now want to put it on their schedule? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So um, it'll be at the Sandpoint Library on February 15th at 5 p.m. It's called Looking Back and Planning Ahead, The Road to a Clean Energy Future. And that information can also be found on our website at idahoconservation.org where we have our many events listed. All right. Very good. Yeah. And uh, I see a topic of the Kootenai River. Who would like to tackle that one? I, I'll go ahead and take that one. Um, this Jennifer. is Jennifer, and I work on the water quality issues for Idaho Conservation League. And so many people don't know that just north of the Canadian border, outside of Fernie, British Columbia, there are several, there's four active mountaintop removal coal mines just beyond the Beauty Strip. So we think of Fernie as this recreation paradise and the Rocky Mountains, and it's gorgeous and scenic. But just beyond those peaks, um, beyond where you can see from town, are these massive mountaintop removal coal mines that are polluting the water, not only there locally, but also downriver in the Kootenai River, both running through Montana into Idaho and back up into British Columbia. So um, we are working hard with a collaborative group of partners on both sides of the border, including tribes and First Nations on both sides of the border, to try to get that pollution remediated. Um, but the Kootenai Tribe of Idaho, I will say, is undertaking extraordinary efforts to revive the fisheries, which are compromised by the pollution, both the white sturgeon and the bur burbot populations, which are a sustenance fishery for the Kootenai Tribe of Idaho. And despite their best efforts, this pollution is still causing problems for those fish. Um, the pollution is so bad upstream in Fernie that actually one of their drinking water wells for the city has been shut down. And recent studies by the United States Geological Service shows that that pollution is only increasing over time. And so what we're working on with our partners is to invoke the Boundary Waters Treaty of 1909, whereby under that treaty, both Canada and the United States agreed to not pollute the waterways of the other countries. So we're calling on, um, under that treaty, there was a body created called the International Joint Commission, which was created to resolve these transboundary disputes, water quality disputes when they come up. And so we're working really hard with our partners to invoke that treaty and and get a reference to the International Joint Commission. And um, it's been a long road, but indications are that the Canadian government may be ready to allow that process to move forward to come up with solutions for the pollution. And really what needs to happen is that wastewater treatment needs to be installed at the site of the mines in perpetuity and clean the pollution out of the water before it gets released into the waterways and downstream over the international border and here into Idaho. So um, while Canada has been blocking that for some time, uh, indications are that they may be ready to allow it to happen and allow the process to move forward. And what's really important for people in Idaho to know is that Senator Risch is he is a ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in, this, in the U.S. Senate. So he could have a powerful influence on getting Canada to come to the table and invoking that treaty. And I think Carissa has a little bit more to say about how we can engage with Senator Risch and how people in our community can make a difference for our waterways by asking Senator Risch to step up and, and assert his leadership on that committee. 
Yeah. So um, on our website, we have these things called take actions. Um, and these are opportunities for people to directly contact their decision makers um, and let them know what they truly care about. So we have a form on our website for individuals to directly contact Senator Risch and ask him to use his authority and to ask for um, a reference to the International Joint Commission. And so it's just an easy email that you can send out to him and just to let him know that this is something we care about. We're not okay with our waterways being polluted and with the fish suffering as a result. And um, we actually, on January 31st, if people are interested in learning more about this topic, we will be hosting a webinar um, in partnership with the Montana Environmental Information Center. And we have a highly educated host of panels that we are really honored to be um, bringing together to present on this topic. And it's a really good opportunity to learn just the basics and the foundation because this topic can seem like a lot to digest and to take in. So we'll have um, Jenny Hoyle, the environmental director with the Kootenai Tribe of Idaho, Sean Young, the fish and wildlife director with the Kootenai Tribe of Idaho, Rich Jansen Jr., who is the Natural Resources Department Head with the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes, Aaron Sexton, who is a senior scientist at the University of Montana, um, staff from um, USGS, the United... Help me with that United one. States Geological Survey. That's the one. There's a lot of acronyms in our work. <laughs> um, Jennifer, we'll have Jennifer here who will be presenting. And then Durf Johnson, who is the Deputy Director of the Montana Environmental Information Center. So it'll just be a really informative opportunity to kind of examine the challenges, advocate for environmental justice, and call for that cross-border action to protect the Elk and Kootenai watershed. So again, more information about that can be found at idahoconservation.org. And we really encourage you to attend. It'll be a really informative, really informative afternoon. Sounds great. And if a listener were wanting to join Idaho Conservation League, I believe we receive those take action emails. I've awesome. responded and those are effective because you don't have to go to the website, of course. You exactly. just get an email to take action. I appreciate those. Yeah, good, good. I'm glad to hear uh, that. Going back for just a moment to the action that Idaho Conservation League takes in order to foster change, um, what does it mean? Do you have to initiate a lawsuit? Do you reach out? What is that? We don't have to go down, down into the weeds, <laughs> but what does that look like? There are lots of tools in the toolbox, and um, sometimes you use the hammer, which is the lawsuit, <laughs> but sometimes, you know, you might use something a little lighter, um, you know, maybe a screwdriver or something. <laughs> I don't know. But <laughs> there's lots of different ways, right, to affect change. And it really depends on the issue and the willingness of the decision maker to work collaboratively or not. Um, you know, usually our first approach is the carrot and to try to work with people to get things done and find, you know, common ground. But, you know, we certainly reserve the right to bring out the hammer. Yeah. And someone has to have the hammer get things <laughs> done and so you guys are having it jennifer and in addition to the options that brad mentioned that something in the middle is activating our community to engage on those issues and to engage with the decision makers and we have an amazing community here that has stepped up big time when it matters and so later in this talk we'll be asking people to step up again not only for the kootenai river but for other issues as well very good. Well, that's a big project, and uh, fingers crossed you all make some pro progress and uh, something starts happening in uh, cleaning up the river. Wish us all great luck on that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we're still on a fishy topic, and that's salmon, a huge topic. 
Yeah. So one of our initiatives is to restore wild salmon and steelhead in the um, Clearwater and Salmon River basins of of central Idaho. We have um, really great habitat, but a lot of the fish just can't get to it. Um, there's four dams on the Lower Snake River that were built in the 60s and 70s to make uh, Lewiston, Idaho an inland seaport. Um, contrary to popular perception, those are not large hydropower dams. They were built to provide uh, locks for barges to move up and down the river. They do have turbines. Uh, they have a nameplate of 3,000 uh, megawatts, but it's rare that those dams actually produce that much energy because um, they're what you call run-of-the-river dams. They don't store large amounts of water behind those dams. The water that is coming down the river goes through those dams as the volume of the runoff uh, comes down the river. Um, <clears throat> so those dams could be taken out uh, to provide better passage for wild salmon and steelhead and recognizing the importance of the barging transport system on the Lower Snake River for grain producers and farmers on the Palouse, uh, there's ways to get their products to market that don't require the barging system. And so uh, ultimately, in order to get those dams removed, we need to replace the services that those dams provide by uh, providing, um, you know, like expanding rail lines so that grain could be shipped via rail instead of by barge. Um, <clears throat> so our initiative is really focused on replacing the services that those dams provide um, by um, providing alternative forms of getting, you know, grains and other products to market, uh, taking out the dams, and then restoring wild salmon and steelhead to central Idaho. Um, if we don't act in the near future to remove these dams, uh, we could see total extinction of Idaho's wild and salmon wild salmon and steelhead runs, uh, which are really on the brink at this point. Um, and that would be a huge injustice to the tribes in Idaho who um, rely on those fish for subsistence. And also um, wild salmon and steelhead really are central to the culture of tribes like the Nez Perce. Um, and we need to honor the treaty rights of those tribes who uh, when we when the United States government signed treaties with those tribes, those tribes were pre uh, promised that they would have uh, harvestable wild and salmon, wild salmon and steelhead uh, to supply food to their people and to sustain their culture. And uh, we need to act in the near future, or we'll lose these um, wild salmon and steelhead runs forever. And. In addition to native populations, these fish are important to so much of the ecology, correct? I mean, killer whales, everybody. Yep. So like orcas uh, mm -hmm. on the on the coast, of course, rely on salmon as a food source. Um, the wild salmon and steelhead, when they return to Idaho, actually bring nutrients back from the ocean to these headwater ecosystems that are really deficient in, ecos in uh, nutrients. So... Uh, it's all very connected, and if you sever that connection, you know there are uh, ecological implications in Idaho and in the ocean that we need to be mindful of. Yeah, agreed. So it's a it's a big challenge, and uh, the methodology you're using to try and replace the, the affordable transportation for 
agricultural products it seems like a great way that could work but what is the time frame it seems like it would be lengthy yeah it's it's a little uncertain uh we still don't have you know consensus in congress which in order to remove these dams because they're federal dams it requires an act of congress to authorize their removal and so our work really focuses on building support both in the northwest and now at the national scale in congress to secure congressional support for removal of these dams. Um, so that's where we're really focused right now. Um, the Biden administration has shown some progress in recent months uh, towards this issue, though. Um, back in December, uh, there's an agreement between ICL and other conservation groups uh, in the Northwest to stay litigation that was ongoing against the National Marine Fisheries Service for um, what's called a biological opinion related to the operations of the dams on the Snake and Columbia Rivers. And I won't get too into the weeds on that because it's super technical, but this litigation has been in play for basically since the 90s, um, you know, kind of up and down uh, roller coaster situation where we've had various rulings from courts and then a return to the litigation um, but the Biden administration agreed with conservation groups to stay the case and meanwhile commit funding to start replacing some of the services that these dams currently provide. So investing in new renewable sources of energy, starting to figure out how to replace or provide alternative ways to get, you know, grain and other agricultural products on the Palouse to market. Um, and then there's some irrigators down on the very lowest reaches of the snake near Tri-Cities. And so, um, you know, we need to figure out how to uh, make sure that they can still irrigate, irrigate crops down in that uh, area of central Washington where it's really dry. So um, we are seeing some progress from the administration, um, but ultimately we will need the support of Congress in order to remove those dams. Sure. And this is another area where some advocacy from listeners, members, people around the country could be helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Our Salmon and Steelhead campaign is huge in regards of advocacy and manpower behind it. We have advocates nationwide, worldwide that have stepped up for this issue. We work with different organizations, like you said, throughout the Northwest, and we have action takers contacting decision makers constantly. Um, we have a youth group called the Youth Salmon Protectors that is mainly based out of Boise, but um, there are youth throughout Idaho that participate in it that um, are youth advocates for this. And they have gone to D.C. a couple times. They are hoping to go to D.C. again um, this year to contact legislators and let people know that our future really depends on this and the youth are really stepping up. So this is a great example of how advocacy can really make a change. Yes, and great for the youth because uh, if we are able to make a change with these waterways, change could come quickly. The fish could come back quickly. Absolutely. So that would be fun for a young person mm -hmm. to be able to see. Yeah. If really you're nice. interested in the impact of dams, there is actually a dam removal going on um, on the Oregon-California border of... The Klamath River. Yes, the Klamath River. Um, the dams down there, just a little, if you're interested in learning, it it can be done. We're seeing it be done today, and it's fascinating to look at. Good. What a nice idea. Folks yeah. can go there and see what's, or go on internet and see what's yeah. happening. Brad. Yeah, and if I might add, you know, um, I think it's easy for people to think, oh, well, that'll never happen, right? 
because um, that seems like such a daunting thing to expect Congress to do. But I have reason for hope. When I was in high school in the 90s, I remember any discussions about removing the lower four Snake River dams were just immediately stopped. <laughs> there was no no conversation about it whatsoever across the Northwest, whether you were talking to Republicans or Democrats. But we actually have some members of Congress from the Northwest, from both parties who support this. Uh, Idaho Congressman Mike Simpson has really been a leader on this, and he's a Republican, but also um, Senator Patty Murray from Washington State, who's a Democrat, Governor Jay Inslee from Washington State, and there are others as well. So there is some emerging bipartisan support for this, which gives me hope. And then, as Carissa mentioned, we're starting to see river race, river restoration projects implemented in other major waterways um, to restore salmon and steelhead. Uh, in the Klamath River, they removed one of four dams uh, last year, and I believe are starting on, I could have this wrong, but I think dams two and three this year. Um, and if the Klamath is successful, that will be the largest river restoration project in the world to date. The If we were to remove the lower four Snake River dams, this would be even larger than that. So, uh, you know, with the, the projects on the Klamath to remove those dams, and then, of course, we have seen also in Washington State the Elwha Dam already removed, and there's one other one. I'm forgetting the name that, that escapes me right now. Um, those two dams that were removed on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, the salmon immediately returned back to those those waterways. So we know it can be successful. Yeah, this is a big project for Idaho Conservation League, and I hope it continues to advance. So good luck with that one. Thank you. Yeah, we have one more fish-related project, and that is Trestle Creek. Yeah, right here back in our own community. Um, most people, many people in our community already know that the Idaho Club has proposed a large marina and luxury housing development at the mouth of Trestle Creek on the north shore of Lake Ponderay. And the reason why I know that many people already know about this is because our community came out in unprecedented numbers to weigh in and say that that marina is not well-placed in a special area like the mouth of Trestle Creek. This is an amazing area of habitat. It's absolutely gorgeous. There's wetlands and little channels of water that you can explore on your kayak or your paddleboard. It's home to a beaver dam and bald eagles, and it is the most important bull trout habitat on the whole Ponderay system. And so this marina would decimate that bull trout habitat and cause a lot of problems. In our community, um, more than a thousand people weighed in from just our small area, our small community here, asking the Idaho Department of Lands, which is the permitting authority for that marina project. People asked the Idaho Department of Lands to stop it from happening. And unfortunately, they went ahead and approved the permit anyway. But the reason why I'm really excited to get to speak with our community on, on this program this morning is because that there is still hope. And we are super excited to announce that while that permit has been approved, it has not been issued. And we found out that one of the land parcels that was necessary for the permit application 
one of those land parcels has transferred ownership. And so we, when we found this out, we notified the Idaho Department of Lands about the technicality, and it created a really big problem for them. Their attorneys have been reviewing that for months now and trying to figure out what to do. And so we are at the point that we've decided they are taking too long, and we're going to be asking our community to weigh in again and contact the Idaho Department of Lands and tell them to hurry up and make the right decision and to protect that amazing, spectacular waterway and protect that prime bull trout habitat. And there is a lot of hope that this this glitch in the system, in the permitting system, is going to be success for bull trout and success for Trestle Creek. Yeah, such an important tributary to Lake Pondere. I mean, it's is it the main tributary, would you say, for Kokanee or not? Well, so the main the main tributary to Lake Pondere, eighty percent of our water comes from the Clark Fork River. But the the significance of Trestle Creek, it is it is the most important bull trout habitat. When you look at the reds, which are the spawning areas, it's basically the nest where the bull trout lay their eggs. And so this area near the mouth of Trestle Creek has more of those reds than any other place in the whole Ponderé system. So we're, you know, bull trout are a threatened species. And if they are to recover it in the Ponderé system, it will be largely influenced by the protection of Trestle Creek. Yeah, another very important project. So so good that Idaho Conservation League is focusing on this and not going to just let it let things move ahead without a challenge. We're doing everything we can to protect Trestle Creek and we people can check our website idahoconservation.org. Um coming soon we'll have a renewed action for people to take. Carissa, do you want to talk about that a bit? Absolutely. Yeah. So like Jennifer said, last time around, we had over 1,300 individuals contact the Idaho Department of Lands, letting them know how important this area is to them, to um, this region, and to the bull trout and the kokanee that spawn there as well. And so either this afternoon or tomorrow, we will have a take action up asking people to contact the Idaho Department of Lands again and letting them know that rules need to be upheld. And as of right now, that permit is that permit application is not in compliance and that's not okay. And so we will have a simple online form on our website for individuals to contact decision makers. And we're really hopeful. The community really stepped up last time um, when there was a public hearing, what over 200 people showed up and um, this is really important. And so you also may have seen some orange save Trestle Creek yard signs around town. Um, we have created those to help raise awareness of the issue and we do still have some yard signs available. So contact the Idaho Conservation League if you're interested in one, but this is a really important issue, um, for people to stay engaged in. So definitely stay tuned. Yes, very good. And so listeners, if you join, happen to join Idaho Conservation League, you'll get all of that via email, but you can also reach out to them and get it via their website, as Carissa just mentioned. We're going to go to a short song break, and then we're going to be back to talk about the Wolverine. A uh, song that we'll be hearing, I've selected guys, I know we talked about. All right, and that was J.J. Kale and Eric Clapton with Ride the River. Not a bad song. None of us had heard it before, and we all liked it. So I think I picked a good one this time. For those of you just joining us, this is KRFY Community Radio for the Idaho Panhandle. And this morning, we're being joined by the Idaho Conservation League with 
Conservation Director Brad Smith, Carissa Huntsman, who is the North Idaho Community Engagement Assistant, and Jennifer Ekstrom, North Idaho Lakes Conservation Associate. Wow, that really, that was some good practice for enunciating a lot of words. (laughs) All right, I promised before the song break that we would be talking about the Wolverine, so let's do it. Yeah, uh, we had some great news with Wolverine uh, recently. Well, depending on how you look at it. Great in the sense that um, after a 30-year effort, uh, six court cases, and five different presidential administrations, <laughs> Wolverine was finally put on the endangered species list at the end of November. Um, so good in the sense that it was finally listed to get uh, or to give uh, Wolverines the protection that they deserve, but bad in the sense that um, you know it came to this point and that you know, they had to be put on the list. Um, obviously, we like to see healthy populations of wolverine, but because populations in the lower 48 have um, been dwindling due to climate change and other factors, uh, we now have essentially around only 300 wolverines left in the lower 48. So it's really important to uh, list wolverine under the Endangered Species Act and to now take steps to uh, recover the species in the lower 48. So we're really pleased that the Fish and Wildlife Service made that decision. It's been a long time in coming um, under the Endangered Species Act. It's rare that the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, actually acts on their own to put species on the endangered species list. There's actually a process under the Endangered Species Act where uh, entities can petition Fish and Wildlife Service to list an animal. Um, for example, Idaho Fish and Game actually was the original entity to petition to put mountain caribou on the endangered species list when we still had caribou in Idaho. Um, another long story. That another we long story. Today. <laughs> uh, yes. But in this case, a collection of conservation groups uh, in the northern Rockies in Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Washington, and Oregon came together in the 90s to file the original petition. Um, So it's taken that long to get Wolverine on the endangered species list. Um, But that petition uh, was originally denied, and then we had to go to court six times uh, before Fish and Wildlife Service finally put it on the endangered species list. So we're grateful that the Fish and Wildlife Service finally made that decision. Um, The next steps, though, right, is a a listing on its own won't, won't change the situation for Wolverine. So... The next steps, um, there are basically three things that that need to happen. Um, The first thing is, as part of the listing, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, can propose, when they list any species, to exempt certain activities that would normally be prohibited. Um, So the Endangered Species Act, the main thing, one of the main things it does is it prohibits taking or killing or harassing those species, right? And so one of the exemptions that they've proposed with Wolverine is to exempt incidental trapping. So if someone were to go out in Idaho and set a trap, let's say for a fisher or a marten or a bobcat, and they accidentally caught a uh, Wolverine, normally that would be prohibited under the Endangered Species Act. But the Fish and Wildlife Service is proposing to exempt incidental trapping of wolverine from the Endangered Species Act's normal prohibition on the take of species. So um, they're accepting public comments on this right now, and that is uh, an issue that 
members and listeners can also go to our website to take action on because uh, we are asking people to contact Fish and Wildlife Service to oppose that exemption. Uh, we think that there are ways to uh, protect wolverine from incidental trapping, such as just not allowing trapping in areas where we have wolverine or, you know, regulations on the certain types of traps you can have or where you can set them. So um, we think it's inappropriate to um, allow incidental trapping of wolverine to occur. Um, we've had at least a dozen wolverine incidentally trapped in Idaho since, I believe, the 1990s. Um, I'd have to double check that, but it is a, actually a thing, you know, where people go out and set traps and accidentally uh, trap and kill a wolverine. And so um, we feel that exemption is inappropriate. The second thing that needs to happen is the Fish and Wildlife Service actually has to write a recovery plan. So there will be a process uh, forthcoming to draft a recovery plan. And then the third thing is designation of critical habitats. So these are habitats that are vital to the conservation and recovery of the species. Um, and Idaho is really important in that regard because um, Idaho has more wolverine habitat in the lower 48 than any other state. Only Alaska has more wolverine habitat. So Idaho is really important to wolverine. Uh, we have huge mountainous region in central and northern Idaho that provides high elevation areas with deep, persistent spring snowpack, which is super important to wolverines. Um, so, yeah, we're really grateful the Fish and Wildlife Service finally acted on this. And obviously, there's a lot more work to be done to protect wolverine uh, and, and recover wolverine. But um, we're, we're grateful that the Fish and Wildlife Service finally added them to the endangered species list. Yeah, I'm grateful, too. Um, as you were talking about this process and uh, previously about the long process for the salmon, um, you know, re reintroduction into parts of the rivers, um, I found myself thinking, these are long projects. They're lifelong. Um, how do you feel about that? I mean, how do you look at it and remain patient? Yeah, like like the Wolverine, <clears throat> you know, a lot of our work is a long game. And so it takes persistence. Uh, as uh, uh, my former executive director used to say, endless pressure, endlessly applied. Um, but someone has to do it. Uh, and if we don't, then, you know, I think people would, or Wolverine may not get the protections or the recovery that they deserve. And so it's really important for us and for, uh, other groups and for tribes and First Nations and other people that care about conservation and the environment to keep the pressure on. Otherwise, you know, creatures like the wolverine would easily slip into extinction. So um, it's a super important role that we play and that other organizations and tribes play. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, you can easily kind of get frustrated or lose hope. But, um, you know, when we do have success, that's what I remember is, uh, those successes are what provide me the motivation to like keep the pressure on on other issues. Yeah, I think you're patient, hopeful people, and we're lucky to have you working <laughs> in this field. Thank you. It's very good. All right. Well, the Wolverine will hopefully see some improvement uh, in its condition due to that ruling. And uh, I think we have at least one more topic, guys. Um, oh, this is an interesting one, and it's also local, and I'll just introduce it, and then you'll 
tell us more. Idaho Panhandle National Forest, they recently approved the Kinixu Over Snow Vehicle Use Designation Project. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so each national forest um, is supposed to have what's called a travel management plan. And the travel management plan is not about vacations. <laughs> I always feel like it's like, you know, contacting your travel agent or something, but it's it's actually more about the ac- public access to national forest lands. So um, back in 2005, uh, the Bush administration actually <clears throat> adopted some rules directing each national forest to undertake this travel planning process, both for summertime and wintertime, because uh, there were a lot more off-road vehicles and snow machines coming onto the market and being used. And prior to 2005, the Forest Service's policy was you could go anywhere unless they said it was closed. And so now the policy is that it's closed unless designated open. So the Forest Service, each national forest goes through this process of designating roads, trails, and areas that are open for motorized access both in the summertime and in the wintertime. So the Idaho Panhandle National Forest has long had a summer travel management plan, um, but that winter travel management plan uh, hadn't been done uh, across the Idaho Panhandle National Forest. Up until recently, the Idaho Panhandle National Forest uh, undertook a process to come up with a winter travel management plan for uh, what's called the Kanixu part of the Idaho Panhandle National Forest. Um, so, and that includes the Bonners Ferry, Priest Lake, and Sandpoint Ranger Districts. Uh, it's about a million acres of national forest lands in our area. Um, and so the Forest Service uh, decided that, hey, maybe for this process, we should pull some folks from the community together and see if they can come up with uh, some consensus or some common ground around where snow machine access should be allowed uh, on those ranger districts. So they pulled together about 30 people, um, and the group consisted of snowmobilers, backcountry skiers, conservation groups, and there were some other community representatives involved, and I represented ICL in that process. And we spent a period of, the Forest Service gave us six months, which is a pretty tight timeline for something like this. But they gave this citizens group six months to come up with a proposal for the Kinixu Winter Travel Management Plan. And so um, we met several times each month over that six month period. And uh, it kind of felt like negotiating a nuclear disarmament treaty at times, (laughs) because people are very passionate about their recreational access and where they can go. And I will be the first to admit that I was skeptical that this group would be able to pull it off at the beginning. But the process, I think, was super important because a lot of trust was built and a lot of good faith effort went into negotiating and coming up with a proposal that could be supported by snowmobilers, backcountry skiers, conservationists, and others. Um, And so we came up with a plan that uh, has... 267,000 acres of that 1 million acres that are closed all winter long just to provide secure areas for wildlife because winter is a really hard time for wildlife. There's not a lot of food out there. They're trying to conserve energy. And so they need areas without a lot of human 
disruption uh, to survive the winter. And so that 267,000 acres provides those secure areas for species like the wolverine or for lynx or um, even in the springtime, you know, grizzly bears start coming out of hibernation about April and you still have some people out there snowmobiling sometimes into May. And so grizzly bears even need some areas where there's not a lot of people buzzing around. Um, there's another 155,000 acres that's open all winter long. So, you know, if you're wanting to ski anytime between, or excuse me, if you're wanting to snowmobile anytime between, you know, November and May, there's a place to do that. Um, and then there's the remaining acreage is um, open all winter. In, well, it's open until April 1st and then starting April 1st on that approximately 600,000 acres, um, you have to then stay on designated roads and trails after April 1st on that. And that's because, again, of the grizzly bear. So, um, yeah, it's not the plan that I would have approved if I were king for a day, but there was a lot of effort that went into coming up with some common ground and doing some negotiating and some give and take. And uh, the Forest Service finally approved that plan um, over the holidays. I think December 28th was actually when they signed the final decision. And so it was really great to see that <clears throat> plan come together with, you know, all the effort that went into it from so many different user groups and interests. Um, because, again, you know, access issues can be very contentious and very hard to work through. Um, you know, in my time at ICL, I've worked on travel management plans all over the state. And, you know, sometimes I've come to agreement with motorized groups on a trail here or there or a few areas. But um, this is by far uh, the most successful of those efforts, you know, to reach consensus on a million acres of national forest lands and the types of recreational access that will be allowed during the winter or not allowed uh, is a very challenging thing to do. So I'm very proud of the work and effort that the group put into it and what we came up with. Yes, congratulations. That Thank that you. had to have been just a very difficult um, decision-making process. And you got it started and you got a plan in place and uh, folks were able to work together. And uh, it may change in the future, it may not, but at least things have been decided and work, things will move on. There will yeah. be some progress with travel, travel management. Yep, and that will be implemented next winter. Um, so this winter, the current plan stays in place, which really isn't a plan because they don't have one. But <laughs> um, so maps will be published before next winter, and then the Forest Service will start enforcing and implementing it uh, in the winter of 24-25. All right. Well, congratulations. A lot of progress slowly made, but it all happens over time. Mm -hmm. As we come to the end of the hour, we just have oh five minutes or so left. I'd like to just ask if there's anything else we want you all would like to mention or uh any conclusion conclusion concluding uh statements you might like to make yeah i just want to um really emphasize the fact that throughout all that we've talked about a lot of our work is not possible without our advocates and our supporters and so almost every topic we've covered we've mentioned some sort of take action that comes along with it and so that just goes to show the importance of speaking up for things that you care about and things that matter to you and things that impact our environment and the future. 
Um, and so we really encourage people just to pay attention to what's going on around them and to be engaged and to be involved. And so if you're interested in being more engaged, being more involved, um, you can sign up for our newsletter on our website. And so um, if you go to idahoconservation.org, there is a form there where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where you will get a brief update on what we've been working on, some recent wins, just what's happening, as well as you'll be looped into upcoming events, volunteer opportunities. Um, for example, something that we haven't even really talked about, but it's what a lot of people in the area know us for is our water quality monitoring program. And so that will be starting up again in the summertime. And we're always looking for more volunteers who care about Lake Ponderé and the quality of our waters. And so it's an opportunity for volunteers to get involved. And then we have various events, like we have a beach cleanup that happens on Earth Day, or we've even started a conservation book club for people who want to get more educated and informed on various conservation topics and to connect with fellow conservationists and find that community. That's a great idea because you don't always know which book is the one you want to pick up and read. And so it's nice to have a recommendation. I like it. Exactly. Yeah. So that's something that um, it is virtual. We do meet over Zoom just so we can include um, people statewide. We even have some people joining us from outside of the state. I saw we had someone register from um, Maryland, I want to say it was. And so it's just an opportunity to come together with conservationists and to discuss things, maybe even come up with some solutions for these problems that we're working to address. And so uh, there's just some ways to get involved. And um, like I said, I encourage people to check out our website, sign up for our newsletter, and just be on the lookout for what we're up to. Well, very good. Uh, Brad, any last words? And then we'll go out with a song. No, I just really want to thank KRFY for having us on the show. It's always a pleasure to come in and chat about the work we're doing. gives us great exposure. Uh, and I also just personally enjoy listening to KRFY. So oh, thank <laughs> thanks you. for having us. That's really a nice uh, conclusion. Well, folks, you've been listening to the Idaho Conservation League with Brad Smith, who is newly appointed conservation director, Carissa Huntsman, North Idaho Community Engagement Assistant, and Jennifer Ekstrom, North Idaho Lakes Conservation Associate. We're going to go out with a song and hope you enjoyed this interview, everyone. It is Talking Heads, Take Me to the River, and we may not hear all of it before the hour comes to an end, but we'll get part of it.